0: Welcome to our Cloth with the Sun daily podcast, our reading and meditation on the gospel of the day. I am James Thomas. Today is Friday, January the 5th, 2024, and I am particularly excited today because while we're getting close to the epiphany, still in the Christmas season, today we celebrate the feast of St. John Newman, one of my favorite saints uh, I am broadcasting from South Jersey, and so I regularly head over to the St. John Newman Shrine in Philadelphia, and it's just a fantastic place, and there's so many miracles and just so much to talk about. I will try to keep my podcast today under three hours. I'm kidding. I, I You know I go long. But anyway, here's the gospel. Uh, it's from the gospel according to St. John. Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the town of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one about whom Moses wrote in the law, and also the prophets, Jesus, son of Joseph, from Nazareth. But Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come from Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Here is a true child of Israel. There is no duplicity in him. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Do you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. And he said to him, Amen, amen, I say to you. You will see the sky opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So this is a fantastic reading, although I was going to focus a little bit today, a little bit more on the Feast of St. John Newman. But in this reading, I don't know if anybody has seen the chosen TV show, and in particular, the episode where Jesus meets Nathaniel. Nathaniel, also known as Bartholomew, he, yes, he's got the longest first name and last name. (coughs) and he was martyred brutally decades later after he met Jesus. But at this time, well, in that episode of The Chosen, they have Nathaniel sitting under a fig tree, and he's very upset about the events of his life, and he's saying, God, do you see me? Do you see me? Are you there? Do you hear me? Am I real to you? Are you real? Dear God, do you see me? Do you see me? And it may, I mean, I'm almost in tears talking about it because it was so powerful when he does finally meet the Lord. And he says, how do you know me? And Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree. And this is why he's so excited in his response. You are the king of Israel. You are the son of God. So that's powerful. However, at the same time, There's a little bit of a humorous element going on here. There is this, for whatever reason, people don't like Nazareth, which is why it's so apropos that our Lord grew up there, because our Lord just takes on the worst, right? He takes on our sins. He's born in a stable in Bethlehem, uh, right? He is placed in a manger. He's surrounded by all kinds of interesting smells when he's born. I mean, Jesus, yeah, they have to escape to Egypt, so Jesus lives in poverty, so who knows what kind of town Nazareth is. I would imagine it's nice, you know, from the things that we hear in, in the Gospels, but still, Philip says, or I'm sorry, Nathaniel says, can anything good come from Nazareth? They're hung up on this idea that the Messiah is coming as a triumphant earthly king, and Jesus hears him mystically, miraculously hears him. So when Jesus meets him, he says, Oh, there's no duplicity in this one. He is a true son of Israel, and it's funny. There's a little bit of a humor content there, a little bit of a humor uh, component. Uh, Jesus is saying, "Yeah, you're going to tell it like it is, aren't you? You're just going <laughs> to, you're going to be very honest." And that's why that leads Philip to say, "Well, how do you know me?" In other words, you seem to know something. You seem to have heard something. How do you know? And then there's that very moving scene. So I'm going to leap from there into talking about our saint for the day nowadays people might say can anything good come from philadelphia well yeah we have an amazing saint but the people of philadelphia at the time of saint john newman would have said can anything good come from eastern europe why is this short unattractive foreigner Our bishop, people in high society, Philadelphia said at the time, he barely understands English and you're making him our bishop. He does not come from wealth. He does not come from an affluent background, an influential family. He's a little nobody. And yet he's the best bishop. You could argue he's the best bishop this country ever had. One, I mean, a great saint who was also a bishop. Let's talk a little bit about him. He was born in, uh, I guess, the English pronunciation, if you're just reading it, is Procetit, but I don't know how they would have pronounced it. It was Bohemia, um, which is now the Czech Republic, Czechoslovakia, depending what era in history, that's where it gets its name from, and... They had an overabundance of priests, believe it or not. He used to, it's a beautiful story of his childhood, just like St. John Vianney and certain others. He, St. John Bosco, he went to church every day with his mother and he loved Jesus and he wanted to be a priest. He talked about it all the time. And so he entered the seminary. He went through all of his training right there near home and they weren't going to ordain him because they had an overabundance of priests. So, he had a great desire to go to the new world and be a missionary. So he got on a boat and he sailed to America. He never saw his mother again. Uh, I don't think he's no, I think he did see his father one more time after that. When he was a bishop, he went to Rome for the papal official declaration of the immaculate conception of our lady in 1854 A couple years before Mary appeared at Lourdes and said, I am the Immaculate Conception. Anyway, so many stories here that converge. But yes, he was one of the bishops present for that official pronouncement in 1854. That was during his eight year tenure as Bishop of Philadelphia. And he got a chance to visit his home. Uh, His brother had actually come to America, uh, but his father was still at home. He got to visit his father. And that was the last time he saw him. Anyway, getting back to his time of his ordination, he sailed to America, he arrived in New York, he had his papers from the church indicating he had completed seminary training, and he went right to Bishop Dubois of New York, and I mean, Bishop Dubois, I don't know if he was the first or second bishop of New York, this is the very early days of the faith in this country, and he ordained him right away, and he sent him out to, uh, to be a missionary in the area around Buffalo, New York. He sent him out to the wilderness. There were still Native Americans roaming about, and he was actually attacked at one point by a group of them. And he went to a little village where there were just random you know, people scattered all over. And he ministered to these people. They started to build a church there, and it was very, very difficult. He was alone. On his way out there, he met. Oh, I forget his name right now. Normally, I have all these things at the top of my head. I'm very familiar with his story. But he met a, uh, a priest who was part of the Redemptorists. Now, the Redemptorists were founded in Italy, but there were a number of German Redemptorists in America. And po- St. John Newman, although he hardly spoke English, he spoke German very well, believe it or not. He spoke like four or five languages. And um, anyway... He was invited to join the Redemptorists. I want to say it was Father Prost. Anyway, Father Prost asked him to join the Redemptorist and said, uh, You will not survive on your own, especially in this environment. You need the help of a community. Wow, we need that kind of statement to be made nowadays for our priests that are experiencing so much isolation and loneliness while they have the weight of the world on their shoulders. Anyway, St. John Newman As a young priest, this would be now the 1830s, maybe early 1840s. He struggled. It was difficult. He got very sick. He came back to New York City, and by all worldly accounts, he would have been considered a failure. He was nursed back to health, and then he remembered the words of that redemptorist priest, and he went and he joined the redemptorists. And he spent some time in Baltimore which was their main house, and as a member of the Redemptorists in Baltimore, they saw his worth, and he quickly became the superior of the entire community in America. St. John Newman, I mean, yeah, there are certain things about him that make him seem like a failure. He's foreign. He was alone. It was a struggle out there in the wilderness, but in the context of a religious community, he thrived and he became a spiritual director to a lot of people, including Bishop Kenrick, who was Bishop of Baltimore. Well, no, he was the third Bishop of Philadelphia. Um Anyway, he became connected with all these different people. He gave a lot of spiritual direction and they started to talk about him becoming a bishop and he desperately did not want to become a bishop. And he used to have a recurring nightmare that they were trying to put a miter on his head and a bishop's ring on his finger and he was backing away from them in horror. Please do not make me a bishop. But it came true. When I think it was Bishop, see, I'm confused. Bishop Kenrick, I think then became the Bishop of Baltimore because Baltimore was the number one see in America at the time. It was the first see, So when he moved and there was another Kenrick out in St. Louis, I believe that was his brother. And that was maybe a little bit later because St. Louis church wise was founded a little bit later. So you have St. John Newman now. The, the see of Philadelphia was empty because Kenrick was sent to Baltimore, so Kenrick uh, promoted to the Holy Father that he wanted St. John Newman to become the fourth bishop of Philadelphia, he himself having been the third, and the Holy Father listened. So St. John Newman became the fourth bishop of Philadelphia in 1852, and once again, by worldly standards, he was considered a failure. They were dealing with trusteeism at the time. So he was constantly in court battles against lay people that owned the church properties. See, we talk nowadays about just handing over all the administration to the laity so the priest can just do their spiritual ministry. And while to some degree it makes sense, to some degree it does not, because then you don't you need church authority to control its own stuff. We don't need to get caught up in it. We don't need to spend hours, days, months, years dealing with buildings and finances and and all kinds of secular pursuits, but at the same time, there does need to be church control. There does need to be an arrangement. Uh, recently in Philadelphia, when Archbishop Chaput was the bishop, I know a lot of people have a lot of different opinions on this, but he tried to arrange different situations where secular companies would take over church institutions, but the church would still have the final say. And there was a lot of legal paperwork that went into that. So, Secular companies now run the Catholic schools and the cemeteries and the hospitals and things like that, but the church still had, they still have the Catholic identity and therefore they're bound to maintain the truths of the faith. And in some ways they're even run better now on on every level because the lay people are keeping to the contracts, which sometimes church leaders did not do. Anyway, getting back to St. John Newman. He was dealing with a lot of stuff that was very secular. It drained him of his energy. He said, I feel like I'm constantly on my way to the gallows every time he was on his way to court. St. John Newman was a holy man. That was his prayer when he was ordained in New York. He said, dearest God, give me holiness. And he was holy. Why was he holy? Because he was a man of God. He spent hours in prayer. He did lots of penance for his own sins and for the sins of the people. He was very dedicated. He loved to just do simple ministry. He loved getting on a horse and going out into Allentown or Scranton or Western PA, the area around Harrisburg. And he loved to go get on a horse and go to these places to visit the sick and bring people communion. It was a simple thing. That he just loved to do. He loved to be a simple minister. There were rumors that when he prayed over people, there were some miraculous healings here and there, once again indicating his holiness. But he, he, you'd never hear it from his mouth. He was a humble, lowly sort of a man. He just, he prayed. He spent a lot, even after a, being a bishop, he still spent a lot of time with the Redemptorists. In particular, where his shrine is now, Fifth and Gerard in Philadelphia, he would spend a lot of time there when he was the Bishop of Philadelphia. He would go to the Redemptorists. He would take his day off there. He would spend a lot of time in prayer. I love to go there and pray because I think about this is where St. John Newman came and sat for hours in prayer. Man, I love that. It's so exciting. Uh the upper church was literally the same when he was there. And I love that. It's a beautiful, one of the most beautiful churches I've ever seen, the upper church at 5th and Gerard, the church of St. Peter. Uh, but downstairs in the basement, they have the shrine of St. John Newman. So you can go pray in either place. And they have masses in both places. Um, and they have those old-fashioned confessionals there. Anyway, <laughs> not to get too much on a tangent, but it's exciting stuff, talking about the faith In our country and these poor immigrants, I mean, that church was built by poor German immigrants, and yet our wealthiest people nowadays can't even begin to compete with the beauty of these churches built by these people that had no money. They didn't have pennies to rub together, and yet brick by brick they built these buildings that will withstand the ages and that are just incredible to see. So, it's a tribute to our Lord when you build a building like that and say this is this is this is my church. I might live in a little tiny apartment or tenement or row house, but God's house, I want to be the most beautiful thing anybody's ever seen and that's truly the case with these old churches in the inner cities in our country so getting back to St. John Newman when he became bishop, he took it upon himself to just evangelize that diocese of philadelphia which included new jersey um so he visited south jersey on many occasions he did confirmations in south jersey uh it included a lot of the state of pennsylvania and so he went all over but he established certain things while many parishes were being founded and many parishes were growing he established the 40 hours devotion He wanted there to be everywhere, time spent in adoration. He constantly promoted Eucharistic adoration. In fact, as he was promoting this, the person that invented 40 hours in Europe and that really promoted Eucharistic adoration was St. Charles Borromeo. The seminary in Philadelphia was named after St. Charles. St. Charles is actually the founder of seminaries, and St. Charles Seminary now holds the monstrance used by St. Charles Borromeo, later used by St. John Newman, as he was promoting Eucharistic adoration throughout the diocese, now Archdiocese of Philadelphia. Um, So much more to say. He promoted devotion to Our Lady, and then, in the spirit of Our Lady... He brought in orders of sisters, many, many. In a short period of time, he brought in so many orders of sisters. I was talking about this yesterday, talking about Catholic schools and St. Elizabeth Ann Seton. St. John Newman founded many Catholic schools, and he brought in these sisters from all over the world to staff them. And it was just a beautiful thing. If you could see the work he did in that eight years' time— So many schools founded, so much education. This is right after the time of Mother Seton and the establishment of Catholic schools in our country. And the the Catholic school system is still strong in Philadelphia. And it's one of the few places in our country where it is still strong. I mean, you go around our country, maybe there's one or two Catholic schools that are really strong here and there. So many of our Catholic schools have shut down. So many of them are still there, but they're not really teaching the Catholic faith. They're there for other reasons. They're there because the rich don't want to go to public schools, but they're not promoting Jesus in Philadelphia. Like I said, Archbishop Shapu did a lot to really bolster the schools and there. I, I personally know a lot of people that teach in Catholic schools in Philadelphia. The schools are very strong. They're teaching the faith there. There's a lot of excitement about the faith, a lot of evangelization going on. And St. John Newman started all that by bringing in all these communities and just really focusing so much on Catholic education. And you know, when you do this really important work, it takes its toll on you. So at the age of 48, he was on an errand of mercy. He was going to mail a chalice to a priest uh, out on the frontier that needed a chalice, and he fell down and died while he was uh, running this errand of mercy, mailing the chalice. And, um, And that was that. They buried him in 1860 under the... Uh, Church of St. Peter at 5th and Gerard, where he used to go and pray all the time. And never mind, there's so many other stories to tell, dealing with the know-nothings, dealing with people that were persecuting Catholics and destroying our churches. When he, he did a lot of work building the cathedral, which is now in Center City, Philadelphia, and they had to put the windows really high because people were throwing things through the windows. So many stories. But anyway, he died, 1860, he was buried there. And they dug him up in 1960, considering making him a saint when they just the church over a hundred years saw the many, many fruits of this man's ministry. And many people were praying to him and having their prayers answered, favors granted. So they dug him up in 1960 and he was incorrupt. So this happens with Catholic saints from time to time. They don't decay. So now when you go to the St. John Newman shrine, there's a glass case under the altar, uh, in the downstairs shrine itself, and there you can see the body of St. John Newman. I mean, this doesn't happen with people. They decay very quickly. Bodies decay. But St. John Newman was preserved, as have a lot of our saints been, and when you look at his body underneath that altar, you just see him covered. There's a wax mask on his face. There's vestments on his body. But yes, he was preserved, and since his... Um, you know, being dug up in 1960 and and just placed under that altar and so many people coming now to pray literally before his, his remains, uh, there have been countless miracles. There are so many hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of miracles through the intercession of St. John Newman. He became a saint, I believe it was 19, it was 77 or 78, I think it was 78 and just, I've experienced many of his miracles. There's books written about his miracles. There's, they've been on television. So many amazing things. I recommend you look these things up. Let me think of a quick St. John Newman miracle story I can tell you. All right, here's one. I was teaching, and a student of mine called me on the phone one night. I think it was a Saturday or a Sunday night, and said, my father had a stroke, and we had to rush him to the hospital. Can you come pray over him? And I did. I went to the hospital and I had a relic of St. John Newman. Right now, I don't know where that relic is, uh, but I had a relic of St. John Newman at the time and I prayed over him with the relic. And I left and I said, I'll keep him in prayer. I wish them well. And like an hour or two later, the girl calls me on the phone. She says, What did you do to my dad? I'm like, Oh no. I said, What are you talking about? Said, what did you do to him? I said, why? Is he okay? She said, yeah, he's dancing around the room. They're sending him home. He's annoying the nurses. He's like grabbing the nurses and twirling them around. He's so excited and he's dancing. <laughs> so this man was completely unconscious when I went in there and he, yeah, he wasn't speaking. He wasn't moving. They were worried they were, he was going to die. And now he was up and dancing around the room. So this is what happens when we have these great saints. And that's why I say I'm very excited about this feast day. I have a great love for St. John Newman. Uh, So many things to love about him for myself. I mean, just his love for the Eucharist, his love for Our Lady, his love for the local church, and his love for children and education, which is also a great love of mine. So let us pray today through the intercession of St. John Newman. Let us thank the Lord for the miracles he works through his saints. I hope everybody has a great day. God bless you.